Chapter One of Lancashire Characters and Places by Thomas Newbigging. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please contact LibriVox.org. Lancashire Characters and Places by Thomas Newbigging. Manchester, Brook and Crystal, 11 Market Street. London, Simpkin, Marshall and Company. Stationers Hall Court, 1891. John Critchley Prince. Alas, each wish is wiser than the deed. The life and writings of John Critchley Prince afford a remarkable example of the power which is sometimes given to express beautiful and noble thoughts in becoming and even elegant language, in spite of deficiency in education and a bringing up amid surroundings of the most abject and depressing character. Bearing the circumstances of his training, or rather lack of training, in mind, Prince's sustained flow of language is marvellous, and the gracefulness and efflorescence of his diction are not less striking. At the outset it may be admitted that John Critchley Prince was not a great poet. That he was a poet no one will dispute, and that he holds a leading place among the minor English bards is equally incontestable. The story of his life, his poor miserable life, especially in his later years, I do not care to tell, but that story is given in detail by Dr. Lithgow, and may be summarised in a few sentences. Prince was born at Wigan in the year 1808. He had a wretched father, selfish, intemperate, harsh in his conduct, threatening, and on occasions inflicting dire chastisement on the son, for attempting, after a long day's drudgery, to gratify his taste for reading. The conduct of this parent was simply inhuman in its brutality. On the other hand, his mother was a woman of superior mould, and strove under adverse conditions to afford him such education as he obtained in his early years. Prince inherited the paternal habits of intemperance with all his mother's good qualities. He married before he was nineteen, of the five volumes which he published during his lifetime, Hours with the Muses appeared in 1841, when he was 33 years of age. This contains the poet Sabbath, the most ambitious of his productions, with much of noble imagery and poetic force and insight, in which nature, in her different moods, lends a living music to the poet's song. It contains also the contrast and the epistle to a brother poet, his best known and most popular pieces. His next volume, Dreams and Realities, was issued in 1847. In this are The Pen and the Sword, The Seaside Sojourn, and A Summer's Evening Sketch. The first of surpassing power of expression, the two latter of great tenderness and beauty, and each sufficient in itself to justify his claim to the title of poet. The Poetic Rosary, published in 1850, contains many pieces of a more pretentious but less attractive kind, yet relieved by several poems in his simpler and more natural vein. Autumn Leaves appeared in 1856, and Miscellaneous Poems in 1861. His wife died in 1858, and after the lapse of four years he married again. He died on the 5th of May, 1866, in his 58th year leaving his second wife and his widowed mother to survive him. The poet's remains lie buried in the graveyard of St. George's Church, Hyde. 
In his youth, Prince must have been an ardent reader of the best models in the language. This indeed is evident from the construction of some of his poems, and the suggestion of imitation which they convey, detracting to some extent from their originality, and as is proved by the frequent references throughout his writings to Shakespeare, Milton, Keats, and other of the poets. In one of his poems he says, My ears are soothed by no melodious measures, no work of sculptor charms my longing gaze, no painter thrills me with exalted pleasures, but books and thought have cheered my darkest days. Books and thought were the solace to which he turned from the meaner surroundings of his life, and indeed all his poetry shows the reflective and contemplative cast of his mind. His rhythm and rhyme are faultless, he has a masculine power of expression, and besides the fullness and freshness of his pictures, drawn as they are chiefly from nature, his skill in antithesis is equally evinced, whilst in the gift of alliteration, not forced or carried to a tiresome excess, he excels in a remarkable degree. The harmony of his lines is something phenomenal, showing a perfection of taste not easily acquired, even under favourable conditions. If he is not a deep thinker, at least he is clear and to be understood, and in his best productions he has always a thought to express and a lesson to enforce. In his younger days, before the taint of drunkenness had blighted his life, and despite his poverty, his soul was bright with the noblest aspirations. Hours with the Muses is a glow with evidences in proof of this. The sentiment of his lines let us strive to wean our hearts from selfish influences and go together in the fields of truth is enforced and emphasized in many of his poems prince lived his youth and manhood in an epoch of trouble struggle turmoil and want in the worst days of the oppressive corn laws when restrictive legislation made the food of the suffering millions scanty and bare and when the coarsest food kept together the body and soul of the poor his muse, like that of Ebenezer Elliot, burst forth into maledictions against the cruelty of the laws that burdened and starved the people. But bitterly as he protested against the grinding ills to which his country was subjected, he yet enjoined the redress of the grievances of the time, by the exercise of pure reason and persuasive eloquence. He does not pander to poverty any more than to wealth, and though he complains of the heartlessness of the votaries of luxury, who can witness and move the ills of the poor, he does not attempt to instil into the minds of the masses a hatred for those born in a higher sphere. This is all the more praiseworthy when it is remembered how many men in his day advocated physical force as a means, and the best, and, as some counselled, the only means of ameliorating the wrongs suffered by the labourer. In one of his poems he asks, Is it not sad to see a mass of men the sinews of the state, the heart of wealth, the never-failing lifeblood of the land. Is it not sad to see them stand like trees, swayed by the breath of every wind that blows, drinking with greedy ear the specious tale of some deluding orator, and when the artful speaker with a flourish makes the accustomed pause, shouting, they know not why, acting, they know not how, till, having sent the exulting demagogue in triumph home, they find, alas, what they have ever found, for freedom, scorn and words instead of bread. Riot and outrage found in him an implacable foe, and his aversion to aggressive war was intense and burning. 
the world grows weary of this sad unrest this nightmare of its myriad hearted breast this monster breathing horror in its path this hideous thing of recklessness and wrath new thoughts new deeds more kindred to the skies pregnant with better destinies arise among the old iniquities of men the mighty sword shall fall before the mightier pen prince's message was one of peace and good will to men he proclaimed it in words that were understanded of the people and it had a soothing and restraining effect in days when suffering and righteous discontent prevailed his clear poetic vision rises sometimes to the sublime height of prophecy and pictures the advent of a healthier and better day for the sons and daughters of toil the dawning beam shall fill the world with its unclouded glow ere long the patriot's hope the poet's dream shall change to sweet reality below and man the slave of ignorance and strife wake to a birth of intellectual life and again in his song of freedom o beautiful world thou art fertile and fair but filled with oppression and strife and despair hard hard is the lot which thy children endure the thousands are wealthy the myriads are poor these lavish their blood and their sweat and their tears those revel in splendour yet shudder with fears but love shall come down to the nations and bring peace plenty and joy in the folds of his wing o isle of my fathers fair queen of the sea men call thee the land of the fearless and free they say thou art first on the records of fame they speak of thy glory but not of thy shame despair not my country for truth is revealed her hands have the fountains of knowledge unsealed thy children shall gather new life from the stream till the pains of the past are forgot as a dream whilst upholding the rights and dignity of labour he was careful to enjoin its necessity man must not lie on sunny lees counting the daisies on the sward duties well done must purchase ease this is the frequent burden of his song and it has its effect on the character and conduct of many who cannot be touched by the higher poetic utterances he was no mystic needing an interpreter to explain his meaning but clear and vigorous in proclaiming his mission there is almost an entire absence of humour from prince's poetry the want of this is not felt where there is dramatic force and fervour but descriptive and didactic verse needs the occasional scintillation of humour to prevent its becoming dreary and palling upon the sense the possession of this quality of humour if not an actual and superadded evidence of greatness in a writer is at least a passport to enduring popularity no quality in literature wears so well as this or is so prolific in results both to the writer and his readers to be didactic and descriptive and philosophic with effect is good but so is medicine good the difficulty is in swallowing it especially when the potion is large humour is the sugar-coating of the pill the jelly in which the powder is dissolved or hidden without being rendered inefficacious or to vary the simile humour is an atlas that carries a solid world of wisdom on its shoulders prince indeed took a serious view of life there was little of gentleness and gaiety and much of tragedy in his surroundings 
while sanguine of the progress of humanity and the amelioration of the lot of the poor he brooded with melancholy upon the wrongs under which they suffered and groaned his breast was wrung with the misery he witnessed and felt and the gloom of the picture is often stamped upon the outcome of his muse but he was not despondent of the future and of a time when wiser statesmanship and more beneficent laws and brighter conditions should prevail in his epistle to a brother poet there is just an approach to the humorous which is pleasant reading a few scintillations of wit that sparkle with an evanescent gleam but the lighter mood was unfamiliar to his muse and soon vanishes whilst he launches out into a strain of almost impassioned eloquence which appeals to the reason and the heart this poem of princes is well known and some of its lines are as hackneyed as any other good thing in literature but they bear repetition though the space at our disposal affords room for only a brief extract my religion is love tis the noblest and purest and my temple the universe widest and surest i worship my god through his works which are fair and the joy of my thoughts is perpetual prayer i awake to new life with the coming of spring when the lark is aloft with a fetterless wing when the thorn and the woodbine are bursting with buds and the throstle is heard in the depths of the woods when the verdure grows bright where the rivulets run and the primrose and daisy look up at the sun when the iris of april expands o'er the plain and a blessing comes down in the drops of the rain when the skies are as pure and the breezes as mild as the smile of my wife and the kiss of my child there's a harvest of knowledge in all that i see for a stone or a leaf is a treasure to me there's the magic of music in every sound and the aspect of beauty encircles me round whilst the fast gushing joy that i fancy and feel is more than the language of song can reveal did god set his fountains of light in the skies that man should look up with tears in his eyes did god make this earth so abundant and fair that man should look down with a groan of despair did god fill the world with harmonious life that man should go forth with destruction and strife did god scatter freedom o'er mountain and wave that man should exist as a tyrant and slave away with so hopeless so joyless a creed for the soul that believes it is darkness indeed it is chiefly in contemplation of nature that the mist of sorrow dissolves from his brow like the morning cloud and the glory of the brighter coming day lends enchantment to his song books it is true were to him a blessed dower but more he loved the open book of nature and he interpreted its pages with sympathy and master power his best poems are those descriptive of the beauties of nature and there is a freshness as of the mountain air about many of them his descriptions of natural scenery are full of poetic fire and energy he revels in the beauty of the glowing landscape and drinks inspiration from the sunset and the storm a fluttering leaf a waving flower a tree shivering through all its foliage lent inspiration to his mind the summer's freedom winter's thrall the calm or tempest shade or shine the russet robe or snowy pall all nature's garbs he loved them all and deemed each change divine his summer's evening sketch is full of quiet and contemplative power 
with a close observation and facile description of the silent strength and grace of nature in tranquil thought last eventide i went my wonted way along the foldings of a vale where quiet beauty lay to breathe the living air and watch with fancies half divine the clouds that gathered near the sun to grace his grand decline the new-mown meadows smooth and broad gay in their second green the sinuous river gliding on in shadow and in sheen the orchard and its little cot with lower mossy eaves and tiny lattice twinkling through its chequered veil of leaves the costly mansion here and there mid solemn groves and still the mass of deep and wave-like woods uprolling on the hill the grey and gothic church that looked down on its graveyard lone and on the hamlet roofs and walls coeval with its own old farms remote and far apart with intervening space of blackening rock and barren down and pastures pleasant face the white and winding road that crept through village vale and glen and o'er the dreary moorlands far beyond the homes of men the changeful glory of the sky the loveliness below the tree-tops tinged with rosy fire the bright pools borrowed glow the blaze of windows and the smile of fields so soon to fade and when the lingering sun went down the tenderness of shade the throstle's still untiring song loud as early morn the grasshopper's shrill serenade amid the ripening corn the careless schoolboy's gleesome shout the low of homeward herds the voice of mother and of child let loose in loving words the rose that sighed its fragrant soul upon the summer air the breath of honeysuckle wild that met me unaware the smell of cribs where oxen lay of dairies dim and small of herb and moss and fruit that grew within the garden wall all pleasant things that wooed the sense in odour sound or hue came with as sweet an influence as if they had been new and so disposed my mind to love to gentleness and trust i blessed all seemly forms that god life kindled from the dust thus nature wins her peaceful way with silent strength and grace to souls that love her lineaments and meet her face to face blessed privilege to leave behind the paths of toil we trod and live an hour of purity with nature and with god take again his exquisite description of a winter scene i am walking the woodlands whose tribe of old trees erect in adversity baffle the breeze where the many-armed weather-warped long-honoured oak seemeth bent with the weight of his white winter cloak where berries like ruby drops nestle between the leaves of the holly-bough glossy and green where the pool hath no ripple the river no sound and the petrified rill hangs aloof from the ground where the sociable robin alone on the spray saluteth my ear with his querulous lay and shaketh to earth by the stir of his wings such jewels as deck not the ermine of kings where the scene hath a beauty no words can disclose as it lies in a solemn but splendid repose and the whole realm of majesty silence and light in the trance of midwinter appears to my sight like the worship of mute and inanimate things overshadowed and hushed by omnipotent wings and my soul in accordance with nature lies bare 
overburthened with wordless but eloquent prayer his poetry is wholly free from anything approaching to grossness whether in word or suggestion the innocence of childhood woke the tenderest chords in his bosom age won his reverence and infirmity his sympathy prince wrote much under the pressure of dire necessity and as might be expected some of his effusions are unworthy of his genius by reason of this the publication of his complete writings is a mistake they are calculated to repel instead of attracting readers on the other hand to give prince at his best would be to confer a boon in which many would take delight whilst it would be doing justice to the memory and fame of the poet from his writings a selection might easily be made which for choiceness and poetic force it would be difficult to surpass prince was by nature and temperament unfitted to maintain a family or even to earn his own daily bread by hand labour he was stimulated to write and his writings brought him but scant reward in a monetary sense he often essayed to leave behind the path of wretchedness he trod and live a life of purity and though he failed miserably in his aspirations there is much in the circumstances of his life to explain and palliate his failure it may be said indeed it has been urged that he devoted himself to poetry to the neglect of other means of earning a living in a sense that is true but a study of the life and character of the man reveals the fact that it was inevitable in his case to young men it may be recommended to employ their taste for literature and the facility they may possess for writing in furthering their proper business the business on the pursuit of which they primarily depend for a livelihood the exclusive pursuit of literature is a curse to those who in humble circumstances cannot make a respectable livelihood by it nothing is so pleasant as a relaxation from the grosser cares or so well calculated to adorn life and character as the gift of expressing noble and beautiful thoughts when however a man fancies himself say a poet when he can only pen pleasing verse and gives himself his time and his energies to its production to the neglect of his proper vocation it is a grave misfortune for him and can only bring chagrin and disappointment in its train such misguided mortals cross our path at times and we have been pained to meet them going along with vacant stare their eye in a fine frenzy rolling it is not the constraining power of genius within them which produces this effect but simply a want of judgment and it is sad to think that only misfortune and neglect can awaken them from their delusion prince be it observed is not to be charged with anything of this kind he was a genuine son of song impelled by his genius to write and it was his misfortune rather than his fault that his productions failed to procure him the bread which perisheth often assisted by benevolent friends he never enjoyed a stated pension from any public fund though he earned one and he would have been a fitting recipient for such bounty true prince had much of the bohemian and something of the vagabond in his character the usual lack of foresight which distinguishes the tribe characterised his actions want of work or sudden impulse frequently sent him roaming over the country whence after many days he would return poorer than when he set out seated in the quaint parlour of the sun inn the humble but noted hostelry in long millgate 
that classic neighbourhood of busy and croesus-worshipping manchester under the very shadow of the cathedral church the grammar school and the famous chetham library erstwhile presided over by that ancient and venerable falstaffian bookworm james crossley who led a kind of riotous life among musty tomes in the sun inn seated in the poet's corner and around and near him the congenial spirits who were wont to assemble there prince was in the seventh heaven of delight and this too in spite of the squalid meagreness of his domicile across the way very sad no doubt and much to be reprehended for the temptation was great and the irresolute nature of the bard was powerless to resist it it has ever been thus regret is natural but it is also unavailing and to the worldly wise those who never shoot twice may be left the duty of pointing the moral by a homily on the vagaries of genius the record of the later years of his life is one of dense almost unbroken gloom the only twinkle of humour that relieved it and it was of a ponderous kind it must be confessed was when for a season he developed the absurd notion of knocking as a stranger at his own door and on its being answered pretending that prince had sent him for his overcoat or umbrella of most men it may be said that they are dual in their nature possessed by antagonistic spirits the one prompting to aspirations towards the higher life the other perversely through life's journey clogging the weary and tremulous feet of the wayfarer happy is he in whom the better spirit predominates and finally prevails the baleful presence which was prince's largely by inheritance was strong upon him and dogged his footsteps with merciless pertinacity it cannot however be said with any degree of truth that his better nature ever suffered total eclipse it asserted itself indeed in his darkest and most degraded hours and to the last day of his blurred and embittered life with his tall and somewhat ungainly figure his sombre expression of countenance and his unkempt locks his was in his later years when intemperate habits had got the mastery of him a decidedly unattractive personality we need care little for that except in so far as his own individual happiness and that of his family was abridged we remember his darkened life only that we may forget it in his adolescent years he was bright and hopeful and aspiring enough and now we care most to judge him by his brightest and best to how many are the daily associations of squalid poverty and want of comparatively small import not so to prince with his warm poetic temperament his observant nature and refined sense of grace and beauty bitter indeed was his earthly lot with what a feeling of shame and remorse of soul he recalls his derelictions to his credit be it said he never fell from the path of rectitude into open crime and misdeed his better nature was ever striving to assert itself and he devoted his muse to the assuaging of the ills of humanity by singing many a humble song of tenderness and beauty which we would not willingly let die perchance my lay hath ever been unsuited to the ear of those who feast on fiery thought on bitter taunt and jeer but i am not of those who deem that words unwise and wild can earn one blessing for the poor and make men reconciled a little song of cheerfulness to make their labours light a strain to open out their souls and make them think aright 
a lesson which may lead them on to mend their common weal, but not the stern anathema of false and factious zeal. There are those who with a puny pride my outward errors scan. Alas, what little power is theirs to judge the inner man? They think that my poor yielding heart, that impulse still controls, is narrow as their sympathies and niggard as their souls. Could they but read the hidden book, the life-book in my breast, with sorrows which they never knew, a thousandfold impressed? Could they but see its sentiments, its yearning love and trust, and weigh its good against the ill, they could not but be just. But that is not for them, and I dare not presume to claim more virtues than the lowliest who bear a human name. But in this world where men applaud, mistake, misjudge, condemn, I only ask that charity which I would yield to them. It is well that we should take to heart the lesson which the poet teaches, and whilst trying to judge him righteously, not overlooking or lightly excusing his manifest faults and shortcomings. Let us be careful to take into merciful account the temperament of the man and the sad circumstances of his life. End of chapter 1